uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. That's where we're at. Let me kind of give you some context in case you're just jumping in, like what is going on. We're doing this series called Prophets and Kings. We just want to explore really the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles for, for a while. We're in chapter 14. Our hope is to really present this idea that I think is throughout the scriptures, that Jesus said, when you read the scriptures, they testify of me. They speak of me. We believe that when you read through the Samuels, and you read about the good prophets or even the failed prophets, when you read about the good kings or the bad kings, regardless, it creates this longing for the king of kings. It creates a longing for the prophet of prophets. It's doing something to our hearts saying, gosh, when will, the, when will, will there be an actual good king? And it's supposed to create this longing for that. And so it's also something we do. We read through these stories, as Romans 15, 4 says, to bring us hope for endurance. And so there's something about just getting familiar with these stories that produce hope in us, that hide the scriptures in our heart, so we can face the circumstances or trials we might face. Um, It just prepares us for that. So just to catch you up to speed, last week in chapter 13, we know Saul was anointed king, chapter 10 and 11. Chapter 12, Samuel gives a speech, a really good speech. Chapter 13, Saul immediately loses the kingdom. He's still the king, but in chapter 13, if you remember, he offered up sacrifices. That's the role of a priest, not a king. God's like, what are you doing? You're the king, not the priest. You're not to operate in this manner. And so he says, you're going to lose the kingdom. Basically he's saying, your son will not be the next king. I'm going to go to a completely new direction. We're going to see that more next, uh, next chapter, in chapter 16, which I cannot wait for. So that's like two more weeks away. Um, but we'll see that in a couple of weeks, just this new king, King David. But the idea is Saul like, is anointed king and immediately blows it. Now, what I want to point out, and we saw this last week, is there's actually some like resentment, some jealousy from Saul to his son, Jonathan. Jonathan, his son, is a mighty warrior. He's brave. He's bold. He attacked the Philistines. He won in chapter 13. Saul takes the credit for that. And now the story is still continuing. If you remember, we ended last week. There's only two swords in the kingdom of Israel. Saul has one and Jonathan has one. They're not really prepared for battle. They're not prepared for war. And here's what we're going to see in chapter 14. It's a long chapter. So I know you guys can do it. All right, bear with me. It's a little bit longer. But here's what we see. I can't get over this, like from studying it this week. There's really this comparing and contrasting between Saul and his son, Jonathan. You see one, Saul, he operated out of fear and Jonathan operated out of faith. And this is how they kind of did their life. Saul made a lot of decisions through the lens of fear. Jonathan made a lot of decisions through the lens of faith. And there really seems to be this idea that you can operate out of those two lenses. So I wanna explore that. I wanna look at that. There's a lot here in this text. By the way, with Jonathan, he knows, it's clear, God is gonna go in a different direction. Jonathan's not going to be king. And yet he, that doesn't discourage him. Like, that would discourage me, right? Like, you're the next in line. He's like, no more with you, Saul, not your family, not your, not your line. But Jonathan still almost acts or behaves in a kingly way. Jonathan doesn't throw in the towel and say, well, you know, we're not going to be the kings. Like, this is not going to be part of my family. I'm just going to give up now. He actually still, like, loves to serve the people. He will be willing to give his life. It's such a beautiful reflection, I think, of, an, of another son, of a greater son. And I just want to look at this story through the lens of faith versus fear. And so how do we do this? Why don't we pray? Because there's a lot of text here. All right. So let's pray and uh, invite the Lord to kind of speak at this time. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your word. It really is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, I have no idea where I'd be without your word. Just thank you for it. It is sweeter than honey. Lord, we just ask that you would um, be here that you'd speak, that you'd move. God, that you would bring application, that you would bring insight, that as we just walk through this, Jesus, that your spirit would speak and move in our hearts, that you'd wake us up to what matters, that we too would be bold, that we too would take risks for your kingdom. And so Jesus, we just look to you now and need you in your name. Amen. You know, this week, like I said, I've been kind of thinking a lot about just this topic of faith versus fear. And my, my mind has just kind of been piecing that puzzle together a little bit going, it really does seem that the opposite of faith is fear. Meaning sometimes I think the opposite of faith is like just a lack of faith. When in reality, an opposite, the opposite of faith would be fear. Because I'd say that everyone has faith. Everyone does. 
There's not a person I've met that doesn't have faith. Sometimes we use the word faith and there's a lot of negative connotations to it. Like, oh, they're a person of faith. And it's like, who isn't, right? When I go on an airplane, it takes a lot of faith for me. For me, right? I eat in a restaurant and I look at the cook or chef sometimes. I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know. I get scared. I don't know. It takes a lot of faith to do just daily things when you get in a car. Everything requires some sort of faith, right? Obviously the difference for us is what is the object of your faith? We would say the object of our faith is in God, a God who's faithful, a God who's good, a God who we looked at earlier this year, just his attributes, his characteristics. What is the object of our faith? But I guess I've been seeing is this, this idea that throughout my life and your life, we either operate out of faith or fear. Like, and really think through this. Think about all the conversations you wanted to have, but you did not have because of fear. Think of that thing you could have done, that person you could have asked out, whatever. Think of like all those things you're like, am I going to take this step? Am I going to be bold? Am I going to exercise faith? Or is fear going to take over? It's really weird. It seems that I either operate, and it's true, I think for all of us, we either operate out of faith or out of fear. And I've been really thinking about how that's affected my life. You know, I think that usually it's the things I didn't do. It's the times I had fear, I regret. It's like, oh, I wish, the, the sins of omission. I wish I did this. I wish I said that. I wish I approached them. You know, it's like, I wish I didn't operate out of fear in that moment. And I think we operate out of one of those two things. And I really think God is looking for people who are operating out of faith, like faith in him, that people who will be bold, like take risks, that will stand up, stand out. I really do believe Jesus is looking for faith. There's an interesting question Jesus proposes to his disciples, and it's kind of one of those like terrifying questions. Like, what are you saying, Jesus? Listen to this. It's Luke 18, 8. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? I'd be like, why do you say that? Why do you ask that? He, Jesus says, when I come, will I find faith? That means, what is he looking for? He's looking for faith. I love what Adrian Rogers says, a pastor. He says, uh, faith is not knowing God can, it's knowing he will. Sometimes it's like my default is like, I know God can do it. And it's like, mm, it's not really it. It's knowing he will. This idea of when Jesus comes, we go, yes, I found a people of faith. Like they get it. They're all in. Again, faith might have a negative connotation attached to it. It is bizarre to me how like people are like, I don't believe in God. I don't have a faith. I'm like, absolutely you have a faith. You're banking on the idea that when you breathe your last breath, you're not going to stand before an almighty holy God. That takes a lot of faith. It is bizarre. Sometimes we have this idea like, you know, if I could just find God in the science lab or through my telescope here, if I could just find him, then I'd believe in him. That's like saying, if I could just look into this piano, I'm going to find a song. It's not going to work that way, right? Sometimes we just have a, a unique approach to this. Like everyone has faith to some extent and everyone operates out of fear to some extent. And what we see in chapter 14 is you see Saul is really operating and making decisions out of fear. And you see Jonathan, he's really operating and making decisions out of faith. You guys following me? And I think that there's this nudge and this push to be like, we need to be the people that operate out of faith. We need to be the people that operate like Jonathan. That says, you know what? Let's go. Let's take a risk. I think God is trying to like raise up a generation like, like that in this moment. So here's what I want to do. We're going to just break down. There's a lot of verses, so bear with me. Here's the first, uh, verse one through five is what we're gonna look at first. Here's my first point. We're kind of gonna look at faith versus fear. So here's idea number one. Faith pursues risks while fear stays at home. That's what happens in verse one through five. Faith, faith will pursue risks. Can't even say that, risks, sorry. Uh, while fear stays at home, all right? Verse one, first Samuel chapter 14, verse one. Let's read. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of uh, Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Megron, or like under a pomegranate tree. Uh, the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. With, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of this like rock face, basically the name was Bozes and the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. All right, bear with me. These names are so great, by the way. Um, here's what we see. We see two characters introduced right away. Verse one through five, you see Saul and you see uh, Jonathan. You have two guys introduced. 
One looks at his armor bearer and says, let's go. Let's just go. Let's just see what the Lord can do here. The other is just hanging out and sitting underneath a pomegranate tree. That's what's going on. That's like what we're introduced to. I love what Jonathan says specifically in verse one. He says, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. There's like this like hope. Let's go. Let's just see what the Lord does. Let's just put ourselves in a situation where God has to show up. Now, these two rock faces, uh, it's interesting. There's a picture that some speculate this is the area because, you know, and obviously think through how the topography would change over the last probably 3,000 years since this moment. But uh, the bozes just means slippery. Sina means thorny. The simple idea is this. Hey, either way, it's gonna be, we're going to fall. It's like slippery. We could fall to our death here. Or apparently there's possibly thorn bushes or something like that. Like we're going to get messed up. And he goes to his armor bearer and like, it's going to take a lot of faith. Want to do this? And the armor bearer will see is just willing and ready to go. And I, and I kind of point all of this out because I think Jonathan is the kind of guy that doesn't look at his circumstances. He's the kind of guy that looks at God and he sees, he sees his circumstances through the lens of God. Here's how I want to ask it. Um, do you look at God through the lens of your circumstances or look at your circumstances through the lens of God? Like, wh- how, what do you look at? Jonathan is looking at his circumstances through the lens of God. Hey, this isn't hard for God. Remember, Jonathan just had victory in chapter 13. Jonathan just defeated a major part of the Philistines. That's when they rose up and got angry. We see that a lot of the, the people, the soldiers, they actually hid in caves, they hid in tombs. We read that last week in chapter 13. So imagine there's still like a lot of Jewish people hiding. 600 are with Saul. It's just Jonathan is armor bearer. Jonathan has one sword. Saul has a sword. And he's like, it's okay. God's done, God's done more. God's done a lot more with a lot less. I think Jonathan has a really unique mindset in this moment. Here's what I see. Jonathan was willing to take risks for God. I really do believe that God is looking for people who are willing to take risks for the kingdom of God. I really do believe that the enemy has done a good job of just kind of lulling the church to sleep. I'm just kind of putting us in this place of complacency, like things aren't going bad, they're not going good necessarily, but I'm kind of like on autopilot. And I really do believe God's like, I want to wake up the church. I do think that so often, like the autopilot Christianity is one of the most dangerous things for my life or all of our lives. We're just kind of, go- we're not willing to pray and open our hearts up. God, please show up, do something that only you can do. We're just kind of going through life in an autopilot type of way. Jonathan was not willing to do that. I love what Proverbs 14, 4 says. Listen to this. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, <laughs> but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. I love that. Like, like, you can, like, look at your, like, barns or stables, right? And it's like, oh, look at, look how clean they are. It's like, yeah, but you have no oxen, right? It's clean. It's clean, though. The idea is, like, if you want to plow the land, it's going to be dirty. You're going to get your hands dirty. It's going to take money. It's going to be messy. It's going to be stinky, right? Where there's no oxen, the stables, yeah, they're clean. The idea is, like, you know, if you want to see fruit, if you want to see life, it's going to be messy. It's going to be dirty. You're going to have to take risks. You have to put yourself in vulnerable situations. You know, William Carey, he was a missionary to, to India, I mean, God used him in a mighty way to reach a lot of people in India for the gospel. A lot of followers of Jesus today are kind of stem from what he did uh, a couple hundred years ago. Here's what he said. I love this saying. He says, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. I do believe this is, and this is the heart of Jonathan. I'm going to attempt. I'm going to put myself in this situation and I'm just going to expect God to show up. One is sitting under a pomegranate tree, just enjoying a fruit occasionally. The other is like, I'm going to get my hands dirty. We're going to dive in. I'm going to put myself in a really vulnerable spot, and God's going to have to show up. If you've ever been put in that spot, there's something really, there's something really unique about that. If you've ever put yourself in a spot where you're like, I feel like this is a giant trust fall, like spiritually speaking, and I really hope the Lord catches me. And it's really, you have to be in those moments. You have to put yourself in those moments. Like, Lord, the only option is you show up right now. This is the only option. I really do want to ask, when was the last time you took a risk for the kingdom of God? When was the last time you put yourself in a vulnerable spot? Vulnerable spot? And that could, that, could look, that could come out in so many different ways. That could be, I'm going to go share the gospel with this person and just, or I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to ask them a question. I'm going to make myself maybe look silly in this moment and just being like, hey, what are you reading? Let's talk. Like, it could be as simple as that. It could be, I'm going like, to go on this mission trip. I'm going to like, put myself in this vulnerable situation. I'm going to give in a way that might actually stretch me out of my normal means. Like, when was the last time you put yourself in a place where you're like, God, you have to show up. You have to. There's no other option, but you show up. 
You know, I quoted Adrian Rogers earlier, but he had this great quote on this idea, and I want to read it. He says this, If there ever was a time we need an earth-shaking, mountain-moving, devil-defying, sin-destroying, revival-bringing faith, this is the time. This is the age. This is the hour. This is the time to have faith in Jesus. How I want to believe that Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. If there's ever a time we need a generation that says we will be willing to take risks for the kingdom of God, this is that time. This is beautiful. It's like I'm not okay with status quo. I'm not okay with seeing what happens. You kind of have Saul, like, what's going to happen? Jonathan's like, let's go. Unbelievable to me. Let's stand up. Let's see what the Lord does. Let's put ourselves in this situation. See, here, again, the first point is simply this. Uh, faith pursues risk while fear stays at home. We see this really clearly. Now, number two, we're going to keep going. All right, because there's a lot of text. So bear with me. Number two, a very similar idea. But faith acts on promises while fear so often will disguise itself as spiritual. So faith acts on promises, but fear will disguise itself or come across as spiritual. And you'll see what I mean in just a second. All right, let's read verse six. What, goes, what happens next? Jonathan, he said to the young, the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And listen to what he says, verse 9. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. I don't know why I love the trash talk here. It's the best. Come up, we're going to show you a thing. We're going to show you a thing or two. Luckily, trash talk has improved over the years. Uh, here we go. Verse 12. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come. This is great. He goes, Come. Come up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they, they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and among, the peop- um, and among all the people in the garrison in the Philistines. And even the raiders trembled the earth, it trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Such an interesting scene. Jonathan's like, let's go, man. Armor bearer, let's go. We got to give the armor bearer some credit, by the way, because we're like, who is this guy? Sometimes you get like, the, we kind of view an armor bearer like a caddy. Like, oh, they just carry my clubs. Like, it's more than that. It's a little bit more than that. Obviously, be very brave. Sometimes, I, again, I don't want to diminish the armor bearer. I feel like there's a sermon you could make just about the armor bearer alone. Like, we almost can be like, I want to be the Jonathan in the story. I mean, the armor bearer is pretty epic too. It's pretty, hey, I'm with you, heart and soul. Whatever you need to do, let's go. There's a verse in Psalm 84:12. It says, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than in the tents of wickedness. I love that idea of like, I can be an armor bearer. It's better for me to just be a doorkeeper. Like, hey, welcome in the house of God than to be in the tents of wickedness. He's like, I'll go with you. I just want to be in the presence of God. I want to be where God shows up. There's something beautiful about the armor bearer. He said, come, let us go. Now this phrase in verse six, notice what he says. Come, let us go over to the garrison of the Philistines of the uncircumcised. Notice he calls them the uncircumcised. He's making a point. They're not a part of the covenant people of God. There's something different about these people. They're anti-God. But he says in verse six, it may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I want to point this out. It may be, it may be. And this is not a statement of like he lacks faith. I think he's just giving room for God to be God. I, I do think this is important. We see the same spirit in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's like, we will not bow down. God will deliver us from the fiery furnace. And even if he doesn't, <laughs> you know, and I love that. Like, there's like, this idea of like, we're going to let God be God. It may be, it may be, but that's enough for me. It may be. That's all I need though. There's something about that. He didn't have this concrete thing. He had enough though. It may be that the Lord is with us. And, he, and it's this idea it's Romans 8, 31, right? It's this idea of God is for us, who can be against us? There's something about that. When my, son, when my son shows fear, maybe at night, 
or in bed, and he gets scared about the thing in his closet, you know, in that phase, right? It's like, we'll talk to him, like, what do you think's in there? Like, I open it, and I, I pretend to beat it up sometimes, like, nothing's in there. But I'm like, it's dead now, don't worry. I don't know. But we do this thing. And I'll just ask him, like, Micah, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. No, like, and I try to get him, like, say it. Like, is, is, is God for you? Yes. So who can be against you? No one. Yes. All right, good night. That's, like, my thing at night. That's what I do. Because it's like, I see that fear. And I see that that idea of God is for us, who can be against us, is that faith. I think that's what Jonathan has. It's that faith. Hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. He goes, it may be, maybe the Lord is with us. And he, he presents this really unique scenario. He's like, if they say wait, we'll wait. He basically says, we're going to do what they say to do. If they say wait, we're going to wait. If they say come up, we're going to go up. And we know that means the Lord has given them into our hands. And let's go. So they come up. And I love it. Like, they're like, come up. We're going to show you a thing. Great, again, the great trash talk. We're going to show you a thing or two. And he's like, armor bearer, that's it. That's our sign. Let's go. There's something very unique about this. I love what Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 7. Jesus says, he who opens a door, he speaks of himself. He says, he who, opens, uh, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's opens. The idea is this. If I open the door, go. Go through it. I'm opening a door for you. Jonathan, armor bear, go. I can open a door that no one can close. I can close the door that no one can open. And he's like, all right, the door is open. Let's go through it. God is with us in this moment. Here's what I say. When I say faith acts on promises, I really do believe Jonathan knew the scriptures because he would never put himself in this situation if he didn't know the stories of Israel. We see in Judges chapter 3, verse 31, there's a guy named like Shamgar. Shamgar, with just like a pickaxe, killed 600 Philistines. I really do wonder if in Jonathan's mind, there's like, we know God has done this before with a lot less. Like Shamgar did it. I, we can do it. Here's the other idea. In Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, there's constantly these promises that God is saying, when you enter into new, this new land, which they're in, I'm going to put the enemies into your hand. I'm going to give them over to you. There's this promise that you will be victorious. Listen to this, Leviticus 26, verse 6. He says, you will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. There's something unique. Basically, God's saying, I'm going to go before you. Hey, five of you are going to put a hundred to flight. So, hey, the us two, we can take these 20. Like, I really do think that he just, he kind of banked on the scriptures. He knew the stories how God provided with Joshua or the judges, Gideon, Shamgar, he knew these promises that God's like going to deliver. He goes, we can do this. Uh, it's enough. It's enough. I really do believe that faith acts on the promises of God. He basically had to call, like, call upon in his mind these verses out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy that Moses wrote down and says, hey, when you're in this new land, God's going to come over to you. Jonathan's like, let's go. We can do this. That's enough. There's something about faith being built on the word of God. Faith is only built on the word of God. What does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes by hearing and by hearing what? By hearing the word of God. Faith just comes by hearing the word. You know, before we went to church plant, a pastor friend years ago in California gave me um, these like little DVDs, or not DVDs, CDs, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, you can tell it's old. I put it in my car and listen. Before we church planted, um, he gave me these CDs and I put it in my car and this is like a series called Ventures in Faith. And it was really cool. It's basically stories in the Old Testament, New Testament, and modern day, just of men and women who put themselves in really vulnerable situations and how God showed up. And there's all this idea of like, I had to like listen to these over and over again before we made the decision to go, to plant. I remember just listening to the stories because there was fear in my heart. And I feel like the Lord was saying, I've been faithful long before you and I will be faithful long after you. And this idea, like I had to hear the word to just build my faith. I want you to know, like I literally had to listen to those on repeat driving my car. Like God, there's fear that was so unnecessary but what if this doesn't work out? What if I can't provide? What if like all these fears and God's like, I've been faithful before you. I'll be faithful after you stop. It, there comes a point I feel like in your Christian faith where when you begin to sense that feeling of fear, I don't know if you're kind of, if you notice this, but you almost like, I feel like there's a point in my life now where like I have to press into that more. If I begin to, if I begin to fear something a little bit, I can't pray for that person randomly. I can't talk to them. I can't do that. I can't, I can't like, I can't give in that way. Whatever it is. I feel like whenever I sense fear, I feel like that's the Lord's like, press into that. Like, why is that a fear? Like, you actually need to give into that. Like, you actually need to conquer that. That fear is not from me. I do not give you a spirit of fear, 
but a power, love, and a sound mind. There's something about like when you sense fear, to me it's actually now, now it's more of an indicator to be like, I actually need to go towards it. And there's something about that. There's something about this idea of like, why is fear beginning to be crippled? Like you can almost feel it in your body. You can feel it in your, your blood. You can feel it kind of in your stomach. There's that fear coming up. And I would say, rather than like letting that shut you down, actually by faith say, Jesus, that fear is coming. Like, let me now press into that. Not by my, not by my power, but by your spirit. Like, Lord, I'm gonna press into that more. Like, I'm not gonna fear that. And how does that happen? It only happens through the word of God. I really think Jonathan was familiar with scriptures. We'll see that Saul was not familiar with scriptures because he repeats the same sins twice. But I see that Jonathan's like, God, I know your word. I'm ready. Five shall chase a hundred. I have two. We can get 20. I just think that this idea of like we got, faith only comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. I just want to say this, immerse yourself in the word. There's, there's no other explanation I think for victory in life other than loving the word of God. I can't explain any of it. Like if you want victory in your faith, if you want to overcome sin, be in the word, know the word, love the word. Like this, it's the only thing I know that can really build your faith in this way. Read these past stories of men and women who had amazing victories. It just comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. Amen? And so he's building on this. And actually, uh, it says, listen to this in verse uh, 12. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Here's what I see. Basically what he said happened. Like, hey, come on up here. He's like, let's go. Here's what I see. Jonathan was on the offense, and he's like, let us go up there. When I read this story, I can't help but see this theme of we need to be on the offense. Again, listen, let's hear me out. I think too often the church is on defense. I think too often we see something rise up in culture. I'm like, how do we fight that? Right? It's like, I don't like that idea. I think too often we're playing defense. I think of that statement. I forget what coach said. It, like the best defense is a good offense. I think it's true in some ways, right? Sometimes we need to be on the offense, and there is something about that. You know, I used to hear that verse, Matthew 16. Do you remember when Jesus said, he goes, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I used to read that many times as like, hell's coming against us. Like, and we can't, we're not gonna lose. But he says, the gates of hell will not prevail. Meaning you're gonna storm the gates of hell and the gates will be broken in. Like, it's not so much them attacking us, like us attacking it. The idea is like, this is offensive, the gates of hell will not prevail. Meaning when you come to the gates, gates don't attack, right? You guys know that, right? Gates never attacked anyone. If it did, that's kind of weird. But like you storm the gates. And that, that idea of like church, we need to be on the offense sometimes. Like we need to have like, hey, let us go. We need to go. We need not just sit back and wait, wait for that next cultural thing to happen. And then let's play defense. Like we need to be on the offense when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to loving our neighbor, when it comes to doing justice and walking humbly with our God. There needs to be this offensive spirit of like, you're not going to wait for the next thing. Like we want to love. We want to be ahead of the curve. So when people blame Christians, go, Christians, where were you? That's actually, there's a group going, no, they were actually with me this whole time. There needs to be that work. We're playing offense, not defense here. You follow me on that? That's what I see in the spirit of Jonathan. He's like, he's taking on that spirit of offense. And here's what I love. In verse 15, if you just so you didn't miss this, I kind of read this fast, but Verse 15, he attacks. There's this great trembling. I'll read it up again. Verse 15, the garrison and every, even the raiders trembled. Listen, the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Basically, these two defeating these 20 turn to people thinking, are there more? Are they behind us? Where are they? And it turns into like the earth quaking. So God's intervening. Now the earth is shaking and it's this panic. And many of them die. But we're going to see they, they lose. Like we're going to see that, that they win in this battle, in this fight particularly. Now, I find this interesting because it says this in Deuteronomy 7.23. The Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Again, this is like what God said. This is built on scripture. Let's go. Let's see what happens. God even told them, hey, he will throw them in these moments into great confusion. And we see that often. Oftentimes, Israel has very few fighting many, and God throws them into confusion, and that's what happens here. Keep going. Verse 16, on the same point. Let's read what happens next. Verse 16, it says, and the watchman of Saul, so remember, he like, they're in great panic. Saul or Jonathan, armor bearer fighting. Verse 16, the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. Saul doesn't know Jonathan's gone. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time uh, with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Basically, the priest was searching the Urim and Thummim and like seeking the counsel of God. And Saul's like, stop, stop seeing God. Verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. 
And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. They're fighting each other. And there's this very great confusion, like God promised, Deuteronomy 7. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines, so imagine the, the Hebrews who actually went to fight with the Philistines because they're scared. These people, before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, verse 22, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So after all this great confusion, the people who actually joined the Philistines, you know, they actually left fighting with Israel. They're now like, oh, let's get the Philistines. The people hiding in caves, like, let's go. And they have this great victory. What I want to point out in this moment is it says the ark of God was with them. Saul has this mindset of like, let's bring the ark of God into battle with us. Do you guys remember what happened last time? In 1 Samuel 4, what happened? They brought up the ark of God to fight the Philistines. What happened? The Philistines stole it. I know, some of you. So chapter 4, the Philistines stole it. They brought the ark, Philistines steal it. Jonathan thinks this is a great idea. Let's still bring the Ark of God. This is not a great idea. We saw that failed. Jonathan has this mindset of like, let's appear to be spiritual. Let's kind of come across this way. Bring the Ark of God here, he says. Little does he know, the enemy, the enemy's like fighting each other. There's this great confusion. Now is the time to attack. And he's just, he lacks discernment is the point. He has zero discernment. He's like, oh, let's bring the Ark of God. It's like, ah, no, just go fight. Other people get it. Like, you don't get it. Go fight. The Ark of God, that shouldn't be here anyways. That should be in the, te- the temple of God. What are you doing? We saw that he didn't know 1 Samuel 4, meaning he didn't know the story of his people. Meaning he didn't know, like, the scriptures. Jonathan, I believe, did Saul's reflection who didn't. He wanted to appear spiritual, though. He wanted to bring the ark of God. He wanted to seek the hand of God by the Urim and Thummim. He's like, oh, let's not do that right now. Withdraw your hand. There was this appearance of godliness, but this lack of power in him. What does it say in 2 Timothy 3, 5? It says, in the last days, it says, men, listen to this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. This is one of the most sobering verses. When I read that, when you read 2 Timothy 3, he talks about what it will be like in the last days, and there's all these little descriptions. This is the one where I go, dear Lord, like, help this not be me or us or people, where you have a form of godliness, but deny its power. He was avoid those people, meaning it's not enough just to appear to be godly. Like, is the power, like, I love what Paul says, we not come with, with wisdom of words, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit. There's just something about the idea of like, Lord, we, we can't do this without you. We don't want to do this without you. We need you to show up. We put ourselves in these vulnerable moments where only God can show up. Again, that was Jonathan. Saul's not so much. He had the appearance. Bring the ark of God. Withdraw your hand. He had this appearance of holiness, but, not, not, but he, he wasn't truly holy. He lacked the power. Again, the second point was faith acts on promises while fear disguises itself as spiritual. So often I've seen people like say things or do things or make decisions because it sounds good or godly. And I'm like, why are you saying that? Why do you want to do that? It sounds like you're making that decision out of fear. You don't want to go there or give that or do that, not because it's the godly thing, but because it's the fearful thing, but you're disguising it as godliness. You've got to watch out for those, those moments where it's like, well, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'll let the other people who have that. It's like, uh, no, we're all called to go and make disciples. We're all called to be witnesses. Don't try to be like, my gift is this, and that's your gift. Like, no, like we're called, we, you all shall be witnesses. So this idea, like we can sometimes appear to be godly, but in reality, we're just lacking power. That was, that was Saul. Last point, number three, and we'll read in verse 26 or pick up in verse 24. Uh, Faith wants you to freely enjoy while fear wants you to be unnecessarily burdened. This is kind of the next part of the story. Very interesting. Faith wants you to enjoy. Uh, Fear will put unnecessary burdens in your life. Here's what I mean. Verse 24, let's pick up. The men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. Remember, they just like won. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. They just like had war and they're hungry. <laughs> so none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan <laughs> had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. He's too busy fighting. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and he dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright love that. Have you ever seen those, like, I don't know, those, like, nature shows where people are in the forest, and they finally catch food, and they get food, and they're like, oh, I, I can breathe again. Like, I don't know. They just came to life. He ate honey. His eyes are bright. He's like, I can, I can do this. So his eyes became bright. I don't know why that came to my mind. Verse 28. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with no saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. 
See how my eyes have become bright? <laughs> I don't know why that's great. See how my eyes become bright because I tasted a, a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines had not been great. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil. Listen, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And Saul said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox and his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. I want you to stay with me. Battle just happened. They won that little battle. They're hungry, they're faint, they're tired. I don't know what happened, but there's honey covering this part of like the forest. Saul makes an oath, you no one eat, no one eat this, no one eat anything until I get my revenge, until I get what I want. Jonathan doesn't hear it. Jonathan dips his staff, eats the honey. He goes, oh my gosh, this is so good. I need this. This is great. I love this honey. And they're like, oh, your dad said not to do that. He's going to kill you now. Like you, he, he made an oath. He said, no one can eat this. What have you done? And if you just keep reading the story, the people are, they're just so in disarray. They're so tired. They're so hungry. You know what they do? They go to the enemy. It says they, they actually take their oxen, their sheep, their cattle. They eat it. They eat it with the blood. They commit this great sin. Jewish people can't eat the meat with the blood. You got to strain out the blood. And then, then Saul has to make this altar and say, help God, forgive us. Here's what I want to point out. Saul's ridiculous rule and law and burden that he threw on the people led them to sin. Like there's something about this. I, I'm trying to find a way to help us get this. So often in like the Christian world or life, we will create laws or rules outside of scripture. And what does it do? It usually just people, pushes people away from God. It usually just pushes people into disobedience. Meaning it is interesting. I don't know. There's simple, there's simple examples of this. I remember thinking about growing up where I grew up. Where I grew up, Southern California. I went to Calvary Chapel Coast Mesa High School. We weren't allowed to have proms, right? We weren't allowed to dance, can't dance. Christians. Christians don't dance. Oh, they're wrong. Christians do dance. Not good, but we dance. And I remember there was like this, this spirit though, like whenever there was like an unnecessary law like that, not scriptural, we're actually told in the scriptures to dance, but whenever there's like some unnecessary law, like their fear was that it'd be taken too far. So you know what we, you know what we did? I feel like when those laws were created, one, we rebel, but two, we just go, uh, you didn't show me how to do it the right way, so I'll just model how the world does it. You didn't show me how to do it. Like, because in your mind, this is kind of sketchy or dangerous, we will add another law, another rule, and it kind of just push the people's heart towards disobedience. I don't know why this came to my mind, but I'm going to mention it. Uh, my wife's senior year, my junior year. <laughs> this is so great. My wife, oh, this is, oh, this is, I'm sorry. Bay, I love you. This is so cool to me. My wife, her senior year, um, I'm a junior. She's a senior. She's a cougar. Um, we <laughs> were dating. We, I, forget what, I forget what that senior year, I think we saw Les Miserables. Like it was, she knows, I just, that was our prom. Our prom was seeing Les Miserable. That's what our prom was. It's awful. And um, at, at the end, my wife's like, this is not good. Like before that, she's like, Let, we should create our own prom. So my wife created the anti-prom. This is real. She created the anti-prom and she got like, she organized this. She's an event planner now. It makes sense. She organized this big event and she actually got a boat. <laughs> like she rents out this boat. She got chaperones, her brother and sister-in-law, or sister and brother-in-law. She got some chaperones and like all the juniors and seniors were on this boat in like the Newport area, like having the anti-prom. We had a DJ and it probably was worse just the school just threw a prom. Do you know what I mean? She didn't intend that, but it's, it's great. It's actually like, it's legendary. Like, oh, Kimber came up with the anti-prom. They sold more tickets to the anti-prom than they did prom. Like that, that was like an issue. They called like, hey, you can't sell tickets on school property. Also, can you help people go to our prom? It was just, it was great. It was great. My point of bringing that up is when you do add additional rules and laws that are not biblical necessarily, I think so often it just pushes people's hearts towards rebellion and disobedience. There's too many friends of mine and people who I love dearly, who I grew up with, family members, who it's like, because they didn't see the love of Jesus maybe in certain people, or because it was so heavy on the law, it just pushed their heart further and further away to rebellion. I will try to write it out this way. So often overbearing and unnecessary laws push men's heart to clear disobedience. This is what you see the Pharisees did. The Pharisees had the scriptures, but then they added to the law. 
and it was overbearing that no one could do it. No one could keep it. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 4, he says, the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The idea is like you put additional laws on people and they're, they're not willing to touch it. They're not willing to live by it, but it's just overwhelming. It's too much. I try to, again, just hear me out. I wrote it this way. Unnecessary laws cause them to eat the food of the enemy. This is what it does. So often unnecessary laws go, hey, let's the spoil of the enemy. Let's eat that. We can't eat of the honey that God has provided. We're going to go eat from the enemy. I think that's too often the church, again, and I'm not, I just want to be careful how I say this, but I think too often we can put additional burdens that are not biblical on people. And it's like, I'll just, go, I'll just go eat of the enemy then. I'll just go see what they have. What does the enemy have for, for food? First John 5, 4 talks about the laws of the Lord are not burdensome. I do believe that with all my heart. I believe God's word is so beautiful. I believe it's not a burden. I believe when you actually read scriptures and you see the commandments and the laws of God, it's actually so that we can have fulfillment of life. Like, I don't believe that barriers on the freeway are like, oh, why is there a barrier on the freeway? That's so annoying. I don't want there to be barriers. It should just be open and free. Like, no, I'm glad there's barriers, right? The barriers like reflect laws. Like, God's like, I've given you a law so there could be life and life more abundantly. Laws are good, but when we create our own and add to that, so like Saul comes on the scene and says, hey, we're going to fast today. I know you just fought and burned thousands of calories. No eating, <laughs> right? When, when that happens, we're like, well, I'll just turn to what the enemy has. And I think this happens a lot. The point is, I believe the word of the Lord, the commands of God are sweeter than honey. And I do believe that we should love the word in such a way where it's like, wow, this is, this, God's not trying to steal my joy by giving this command. It's supposed to be honey to my soul. But when we add additional things to that, that's when it's like, this is too much. I'm going to see what the enemy has. And this is what is happening with the people. It's really interesting. Jonathan gets it. He's like, we just won. Wait for him to be avenged. We won. Like, what's my narcissistic dad doing? Like, it's about, I, like, it's crazy. He's like, no, I'm going to eat that. And I think this is what we see. See, the problem with this was they turned to these animal sacrifices and they, they were so hungry, they didn't drain the blood or strain the blood like they're supposed to of the animal and they ate with blood. And now they're actually disobeying the real laws and commands of God, right? By trying to keep this man-made law, they're now disobeying the law of God. So his law actually pushed their heart to disobeying a very clear law. Leviticus, uh, what is it? Throw it up here. Leviticus chapter seven says, moreover, you shall eat no blood. I mean, over and over again, this phrase, like don't eat the meat with the blood in it. But they're so, they've been pushed in this position where it's not like we're starving. We're gonna turn to the enemy. We're gonna eat of their food and we're gonna eat with blood in it. Again, because I think the commands, the additional commands of man push their, their people's hearts away from God. This is just something where I'd say, listen, I hope that when you view scriptures, God is not some killjoy trying to steal joy. It is supposed to be honey for our lives. But when we add, the, add to it, then it, become, it kind of becomes like the stench to us. It's no longer honey, it's like a stench. And what does the world have to offer? There can, there's something really beautiful, I feel like, in my life at a young age where I realized, no, God is good, God is loving. Any of these commands he gives, even if it might go contrary to what I think or feel or my expression, I know it's so I can have life and life more abundantly. I know that this is a command because God wants my fullness of joy. That's what he wants. And I would say this, eat of the honey in front of you. <laughs> like, whatever, the honey that before you, eat it. Eat the word. Be in the word. Psalm 119 says this, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I think if the church could present the word of God in such a way where it's like, wow, this is honey, this is beautiful. I want this, I'll give myself to this. But when we say, no, no, don't eat of the honey. Like, no, no, let's, let's actually add on another law, another man-made thing. Then it's like, oh, what, well, what does the enemy have to offer? And then we look to what the enemy has to offer. And I think that's when we miss the point. It was this vain, vain thing he said. It's this vain vow. He spoke carelessly, Saul did, with this vow. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. That's what he did. He's like, oh, we're not going to eat. To be slow to speak, be quick to listen. It's Matthew 12, where Jesus says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Notice what he said, I will get my like, vengeance back. Like He said that in verse 23. He goes, I am avenged, and not until I am avenged. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's, what Saul is doing, he's revealing that this is really about him. Not about God, not about the people of Israel. This is really about him. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So often our, our words reveal where our heart really is at. So often people's words is a reflection of their heart. I said it this way years ago, because I think it's just true today, in 2022, but out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers tweet. I think that but whatever's in our heart is going to come out. And what you saw come out of him was like this narcissism, which is this, this thing of me. It's about me, 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 me getting avenged. And it's like, oh, now you're pushing the people to the enemy's camp. 
Now you're pushing the people to the enemy's spoils. It's not about the honey in front of them. They're missing it. You guys with me? The idea is this. Number three, remember, faith wants you to freely enjoy while, f- while fear wants you to be unnecessarily burdened. And that's what happened. We'll keep going. Verse 36, and this is the last part we're going to read. Verse 36, under the same idea. Saul said, let us go down uh, after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Like at this point, they're like, Saul, whatever you want, man. Like we, uh, whatever. But the priest said, "Mm, let us draw near to God here. (laughs) Saul just gets it wrong all the time. And so Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But listen, but he, God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. (laughs) They're just like over him. Verse 41, therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? Like, why didn't you answer my prayer? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, he just throws up Jonathan with him. I just, ah. Or my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if it is guilt in your people of Israel, give Thummim. This is how they would try to hear from God. These these rocks were on the priest's ephod. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. So God chose them. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. So now out of the two of us, which one is it? Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, listen to this, verse 43. I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, uh, uh, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul has this desire, I want to keep going after the Philistines. And they're like, and the priest goes, let's see God really quick on this. And then God does not answer him. And here's what I love. God does not answer his prayer. And he goes, uh, God did not answer my prayer. Some of you here sinned. All right, why? Why? Why is God answering my prayer? And like, he calls this meeting. He puts Israel on one side and he brings Jonathan. Like Jonathan's the one. Who, yeah, let's bring Jonathan too. And it's like, okay, it's one of us too. They cast lots. It's not a really biblical thing to do. It's Jonathan, but it's not really Jonathan. And he goes, okay, you're going to die. God, God, kill me if I don't kill you is basically what he says. God, do to me. If you don't die, God, do that to me. And the people are like, uh, I don't think so. Like Jonathan, your son, actually saved our lives. He brought salvation. He's not going to die this day. Not one hair on his head will be touched. That's how it goes about. And then he's like, okay, I guess what I just made. He just made a vow. You're going to die. And if not, I'm going to die. His son doesn't die. Now he doesn't die. He doesn't, he doesn't stick to his vows, right? And you see the people go, no, no. And they ransom them back that day. All of this to say, again, there is desire to look spiritual. Let's seek God. Okay, let's do it. God doesn't answer. Some of you must have sinned. Here's what we really see in scriptures. There is this idea, and just bear with me. There's this idea in Psalm 66, verse 18, where the Lord says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. I think David later lo- like reflects and goes on this and goes, yeah, it's not the sin of the people. It's your sin. Why isn't God answering? And a simple point, honestly, when you talk to people, it's like, I don't hear from God when I pray. I would say, maybe the prayer God is looking for is I repent. Like, so often I hear people say, like, why isn't God speaking to me? I want to hear God. Like, it's like, God's like, I believe he will and wants to, but he's waiting for the, the, the prayer of confession. Like, he's waiting for you to say, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned. Cast me not away from me. Like, he's waiting for that Psalm 51 prayer, that Psalm 42 prayer. So often I talk to Christians like, well, I want this, my life. And I say, if you feel like God's absent, have you been, I don't know, just talking about how you confess your sin. Is there, is there an unconfessed sin? Is there sin in your life you're still giving yourself over to? Maybe you're, you're not hearing from God because there's, there's something not going on. Like, that was happening to Saul. He's not hearing from God. He blames the people. He wants to kill his son, Jonathan, over honey. Bro, like, I've been, I've been mad at my kids before, but come on, kill them over honey? Like, that's, that's where Saul's at, right? He's like, oh, you tasted that honey. I'm gonna kill you. You die or I'm gonna die. Someone's gonna die today. And they feel like, no one's gonna die. He's like, okay. He's, just, he's a terrible king. <laughs> they ransomed Jonathan. And this is what's going on. And here's what I, I just wanna kind of close out with, because I wanna bring this back. Again, we see that faith wants you to freely enjoy, while fear wants you to be unnecessarily burdened. What I see in Jonathan is this humble heart of, yeah, dad, I did, I did. I didn't even know the oath. He, remember, he didn't know the oath. I, dad, you want to know what I did? I taste a little honey. Here I am. I will die now. <laughs> he has this like, you know what? Fine, dad, I'll, I'll fake. That's my sin. A sin I didn't even know is a sin. Didn't even know it. They didn't even tell me until after the fact. 
But you know what? I'll, I'll take it. Jonathan was willing to give himself up. Jonathan was willing to die. Jonathan was willing to say, don't be mad at the people. Yeah, you can blame me. Uh, in a sense, I'll be, the, I'll be the scapegoat. Here I am, I will die now. <laughs> Those are his words. And he's like, yeah, you are going to die. And the people are like, uh, he's not going to die. This is our salvation right here. Like, this is the guy that did it. And it says the people ransomed for Jonathan. Meaning they pay, that word ransom here is just like they paid a price to get Jonathan out of death. Here's why I say this. Jonathan was ransomed on behalf of the people. This son was willing to die. There is another son who was willing to die. But he was actually ransomed for the people. He wasn't ransomed by the people. He was ransomed for the people. Jesus said in Mark 10 and 45, he goes, the son of man has come to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This idea of ransom, like I'm gonna give my life on behalf of you. The people, this Jonathan, this Jonathan was spared, but Jesus would not be spared. He would be the ransom for many. And I just wanna say this, as we reflect and read this story, Jonathan to us, the one who ascended the, the hill, reminds us of another son who ascended the hill of Calvary. He says, I will give my life so you can live. I will ascend this hill also to the place of death. But I actually, instead of being spared, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life a ransom for Manny. Jonathan is a wonderful picture and type in many ways of Christ. Christ is the greater than Jonathan. Jesus comes on the scene and says, the people ransom this man, but I'm going to ransom you. I'm going to give my life for you. And I just want to say, as we continue just to walk through these stories, these are not just stories. I think God is saying, I want to find people of faith. I want your heart to, to crave to be like a Jonathan rather than like a Saul. I want us as a church to say, you know, we're not going to be okay with status quo. We will take risks. We will say, you know, the enemy's over there. Here I am under a pomegranate tree. Why don't we actually get to work a little bit? So I hope as we talk through different things, moving forward, just, just hear me out as a church. As we talk about things, ideas, things we'd like to do one day, don't view this as like, oh, that's cool for them. Like, no, like this is your church. You are the church. Participate in it. Come with us. Invite people to Alpha. Go on mission with us. Like, this is you. This is like, oh, this is cool. I'm sure someone here will benefit from that. Maybe you're the person to benefit from that. Like, join us in this. Whether you're Jonathan or an armor bearer, come on, let's go. Let's go. Perhaps it may be the Lord wants to deliver them into our hands. It may be the Lord wants to do something great. Let us seek him in that way. Can we just pray and just worship, spend some time thanking God for our greater than Jonathan? who's ransomed for us. So Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. That Jesus, you were the one who gave your life a ransom for us. That we should have died. We were the sinners. We were the guilty ones, not you. And yet, Lord, you gave your life. We just say thank you. God, there's no one like you. Help us learn just from Saul's life, from Jonathan's life. God, I ask that we would just be people who are not led by fear, but by your, by your word, by your spirit, by faith. We look to you now, Jesus. We just want to praise you. Thank you. You ransomed your life for us. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you in your wonderful name. Amen. Why don't you guys just stand and let's just worship.